down those cards. Fortune tellers! Cards mean different things at different times. Do you know anything about tarot cards? Oh, a crystal ball. Gather around, children. Listen to the mystics. <laughs> Journey. Podcast. I'm no mystic. Welcome to the Mystic Fool's Journey podcast. I'm Anna, and this is Ruth. Hi. This is a tarot occult history bi-weekly podcast. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the history of tarot. We're talking origin stories, popular myths, and answering questions like, what the heck is the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn? And why do I keep hearing about it? So let's dive on in. Let's do it. What was your general familiarity level with this topic before we started researching this podcast, Anna? I mean, it's one of those things where I think anyone who is practicing tarot, even beginners, will probably run across the name of this order, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. I don't, I didn't have like a bunch of deep dive information about it. It's like, I knew that some of the people responsible for our most common tarot decks were in this order, but I didn't know like what they did or what the structure of the order was or even more specifically like their beliefs but apparently it goes pretty deep and they've influenced a lot of things yeah that was me too like I feel like most people that are like beginner to intermediate level tarot enthusiasts have kind of heard this name and heard of the order like throughout their journey with tarot and I feel like I've always heard that it was like a huge deal and made a huge impact on not only tarot but a bunch of different esoteric practices but I just never really knew the full history or like their full impact and the ripple that they made so I'm super stoked that we get to dive on into this today and gather a bit more knowledge here on the topic. Heck yeah. So today we are talking about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And this story is going to sound like it's straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. We've got it all, folks. We've got some tarot, there's ciphers, and there's even a magical duel. Oh my god. (laughs) We've also got some big name celebrities who are a part of the Golden Dawn, including the poet William Butler Yeats and Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the inventor of Sherlock Holmes. That one surprised me. I know, right? Yeah, there's not a lot of info on his involvement, so I don't think he was like a hardcore practitioner. But yeah, definitely a card-carrying member. Hmm. But its famous and most notorious member is probably Aleister Crowley, one of the most well-known magicians of all time whose notoriety led to his nickname, The Great Beast. This group's influence on occult practices cannot be overstated. This group is responsible for so many advancements in astrology, astral travel, and alchemy. But today we're going to focus on their effects in the practice of tarot, because their ripple is large. Many of the most trusted books on tarot and many tarot decks themselves were born out of this group. Most notably, the Rider-Waite-Smith deck and the Thoth deck. But impressively, there are 10 total tarot decks that were created by members of this group. That is a lot. It's so many. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, or Golden Dawn for short, was a secret society that operated in the late 19th and 20th centuries in Great Britain. It was a magical order influenced by the Freemasons, Rosicrucians, and occult hermetic mysticism. At its core, the Golden Dawn's philosophy is that a person can advance in spiritual knowledge and magical power by using esoteric tools and techniques passed down throughout history. And through hard work, they can control their own destiny. While the amount of things they accomplish is extensive, 
Members of the group mainly focus on the spiritual development through the study and practice of hermeticism. I'm going to need to know more about this hermeticism. I think most people can at least associate the word hermit with it, and I'm sure there's plenty of people here listening who uh, recognize the hermit card and probably its associations. Mm. But yeah, we should probably dive into what that means, because for me, it means just staying in my house all weekend and playing video games alone with snacks. (laughs) And I guess this isn't what they're doing. So hermeticism is based on the supposed writings of this dude slash like mystical figure, Hermaeus Tresmegistus. So Tresmegistus is basically a combo of Hermaeus, the Greek god of interpretive communication, and Thoth, the Egyptian god of wisdom. I'm only laughing because I genuinely have no idea how to say his name, and I think if you're listening and haven't seen it spelled out, it's spelled like Hermes, but of course, depending on what culture you're in, you're going to pronounce it differently, so Hermes is potentially a correct pronunciation, and then... Trismegistus, I don't even know. Trismegistus? I'd love to know how that was intended to be pronounced. (laughs) Yeah, I would too. But I also don't want to know because my pronunciation is just funner, I feel like. It's like a little roller coaster. Trismegistus. Heck yeah. (laughs) So who is this guy like? So think of this guy kind of like a Moses character. So this guy ended up writing a bunch of ancient texts, one being the Hermetica, and these together lay the foundation of what we know as Hermeticism. All right, this is where, this is like the word of the day is going to be syncretism. <laughs> when I was doing a little bit more of a deep dive into, I'm going to say Hermes because that's just what's going to roll off my tongue. When I was doing this deep dive into Hermes Trismegistus, he's a combination of Thoth and Hermes, and that is what's called syncretism, when distinct belief systems or gods are merged or assimilated into one another. So like when the Greeks came to Egypt, they combined their god Hermes with the Egyptian god Thoth because there were a lot of similarities between the two, a lot of crossover. And through this combination of the two, Hermes with his communication and trickster-like nature, and Thoth with his hidden knowledge, writing, which is a form of communication, and wisdom, the mythology around them started to morph, and that's where we get Hermes Trismegistus, and he became this mythical figure that would bestow knowledge to humans. So syncretism happens like throughout history, a bunch. You can see that as, you can see it throughout any time you've studied history and you see one culture, you know, pillage and plunder another, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Oftentimes it happened with the Greeks and the Romans. It's happened throughout history. It's like to keep the locals happy, they will be like, well, we'll let you keep some stuff. And it kind of seems like some of your gods and goddesses are similar to some of ours. So we'll just like slowly mm. merge them over time so you can keep them and keep people somewhat appeased after being overtaken by a new ruling power. <laughs> Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's kind of what we look at when we're looking at how things have morphed into like what they are in modern day, because, of course, depending on where you were in the world and at what time period, it's really hard for different mythologies and different religions to actually, you know, cross over and morph. But when you start to lose gods and goddesses, it's usually around those time periods when trade routes have become solidified, when wars are happening, and you can see which which culture ended out coming up on top by who survived. It's basically like, whose religious figures survived this war? And you can see who it's usually closely linked with whichever one 
one, quote unquote. Oh, okay. Okay. And so also because I'm a bit of a clarity nut, this figure, Hermes Trismegistus, is the supposed author of Hermetic texts. I know when I was like reading about him, people and especially colloquially are talking as though this is like a man that we know existed who was human. But as we just saw with like the syncretism, it's like this is a combination of two gods from two different cultures. And so these texts are what is called a pseudepigrapha. And that means that the claimed author is either falsely attributed, so somebody somebody else wrote it and then said another person wrote it, or that the real author chose to claim that someone from the past wrote it. Oh. Yeah. So there are some instances where people who are writing these texts specifically use the term pseudo in front of the name. So there are texts that we have that say pseudo Dionysus. So that way you know it's not... Dionysus, the god of wine and partying, writing this text, but it also kind of gives this air of, of authority to the writings. Oh. There's a lot of texts like this, especially groups of religious texts that don't have a clear author, because, you know, most of the time we find these things, they're in clay jars in the middle of the desert, and half of them have disintegrated, right? <laughs> so you kind of are like, well, based off of like archaeologists and people who study this, will like look at the what they've got, and they're like, well, um, it could be this person, or it might just be from this time period, and we kind of just need to lump it under like, hey, we know a group of people might have written it, but we don't really know who. But also way back then, like when all of this was written, it was pretty easy for people to just falsely attribute writing to someone else. Like they weren't concerned with like plagiarism or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, false identities out there. Yeah, yeah, we don't have those plagiarism checkers or chat GPT and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. It's like The Great Gatsby, how most of it was written by his wife or whatever. That's so funny. Right. You're like, oh, yeah, like we're going to claim it's this person because like they've got the most clout or they're the most respected or this group of people will listen to it more. I forgot that that happened with The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Knowledge bomb, Anna. Knowledge bomb. Incredible addition. I did not know that there was actual theory behind that. There's theory. There's there's stuff going on. So like we now that we know that Hermes Trismegistus is a combination of the two gods and is a mythical religious figure and that he's the pseudo author of the Hermetica, which means we don't actually know who wrote the Hermetica. What is it? What what is the Hermetica and Hermeticism? Yeah, for sure. So I think it's important to establish that Hermeticism is not like a faith system. It's basically just like a philosophical system that includes esoteric practices. In fact, it's pretty common for Hermeticism to be combined with a religion. Like it's often combined with Christianity. Hmm. But you can basically like sprinkle it on top of any religion you'd like. Sprinkles. <laughs> it's just a little sprinkle, a little, a little bit of Hermeticism sprinkles on top of your Catholicism or whatever you prefer. So in practice, Hermeticism is a spiritual path that comes from the blend of three different periods in history. During these periods, people started to add dashes of Hermeticism into their own cultures. The first being during the Renaissance, when some of the more squirrely Christians combined Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic mysticism with the spiritual spiritual practice of the Jewish Kabbalah and threw in some alchemy for good measure. Oh, no. <laughs> just just like a casual like, oh, if we're going to make a Sunday out of religions, like I want my toppings to be <laughs> from the Greek, Hebrew and right. Arabic and my ice cream is the Christianity. <laughs> 
That's exactly what's going on here, Anna. (laughs) The second period of history in this recipe was the Enlightenment and the rise of Freemasonry, whose various evolutions ended up incorporating a lot of hermetic thought into their practices. During this period, Napoleon invaded Egypt, which led to the rediscovery of a lot of Egyptian philosophies, as well as the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, which I think you chatted a bit about last time in our last episode, how we uh, co-opted a lot of this Egyptian lore into tarot's history yeah we sure did yeah the paris had gone through like a they were on an egypt crazy phase um even before napoleon went went over there and part of what we touched on was the fact that there was a lot of like egyptian mysticism just kind of being made up by europeans because they you know thought it was yeah more wise than whatever they had going on <laughs> in europe at the time basically they're like ooh, mysticism occult but we hadn't even found the rosetta stone yet which is the key to translating hieroglyphics. So there were people just writing essays about how the tarot was from the ancient Egyptians and it was their wisdom. And we didn't even know how to read hieroglyphics yet. (laughs) And people were just like... Classic. Yeah, classic. Classic human move. Oh yeah, just the audacity. (laughs) The audacity. The third period was the Victorian era. Due to the colonization of many Asian countries, the Europeans started to incorporate various meditational practices, including yoga and tantra. These three periods combined make up the core of our hermeticism soup. There are many core pillars of this system. The esoteric practices include alchemy and astrology and the practice of thurgy, which is a type of magic that is basically the opposite opposite of black magic you might call it white magic i was gonna ask i was like is it is it white magic is it just focus on more like angels quote-unquote or like nice celestial beings <laughs> yeah less hexing more like spells and that sort of thing okay yeah yeah so there truly is so much to hermeticism But I think one of the most relevant pieces of information to us tarot readers is the phrase, as above, so below. Love that phrase. Also a fantastic horror movie, if you haven't watched it yet. But that (laughs) that movie has nothing to do with with what we're about to talk about. Um, but I'll be sure to add it to the list. You should. It's really good. It's kind of surreal. The fun fact that I have is that as above, so below, which is so popular nowadays in terms of that's that's how you hear that phrase, it's actually a paraphrased version. And some have said that it's actually more of a mistranslation of the full phrase. So the uh, translation from the original Arabic is that which is above is from that which is below, and that which is below is from that which is above. So if you're kind of like a bit of a grammar geek, um, knowing the correct translation might affect how you interpret what this phrase means. And that paraphrase that we have, as above, so below, like some people interpret that as like, I want to make what is above come down to earth, uh, that kind of thing. They It's very literally like some people I've heard are like, I want to make like heaven on earth type thing. Right, right. But then when you get this translation, which has a few extra words, it starts to sound far more about like, okay, that which is from the above, that which is above is from the below. You start to see how that's kind of like this loop and you might dive into like, oh, what's down here and available to available to me has come from above, but what is above has come from below. And so it's just this like infinite loop of how it interchanges with one another and how we can affect the above and the below. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So depending on how much of a grammar nerd you are, that might change how you start to interpret things. And that doesn't even get into alchemy and Carl Jung specifically and his interpretation of that phrase. Right. 
Right. If I remember correctly, Ruth, I think that this phrase is also closely associated with the Rider-Waite-Smith magician card in tarot, right? Yeah, exactly. So this phrase came from a text attributed to Trismegistus called the Emerald Tablet, and then A.E. Waite, the creator of the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck and a member of the Golden Dawn, later adopted it as the meaning of the magician card when he was creating his deck. But I think we'll get into that a little bit more later in the episode. That sounds magical. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it does. So the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is widely accepted as one of the largest influences on the 20th century Western occultism and helped lead the way for many contemporary practices such as Wicca and Thelema. The order was founded by three men, William Robert Woodman, William Wynne Westcott. (laughs) Wow. I got some (laughs) tongue ties there. (laughs) Yeah, it's just... mm. And finally, Samuel Liddell Matters who were all Freemasons. And despite the Golden Dawn being based on hierarchy and initiation, women were admitted on an equal basis as men, which is just super awesome when you consider the general treatment of women in Victorian (laughs) society at the time. Yeah, what uh, what a win. I mean... We'll take we'll take the little steps they'll give us as we can take as we can get them right. Like anything we, we can inch get. forward to equality. Yes, claw our way forward through hermeticism. Apparently, apparently. So gender equality was actually a core tenet for the order. In fact, the group's initiation ritual includes an admonishment that women in the order must be equal to men. Many women would achieve super high ranks in the group. And most women in the group were more inclined to the more intuitive practices such as channeling and astral projection. But their work definitely wasn't limited to the intuitive side of things. Quite a few female members would go on to publish super dense books on Egyptian and Enochian magic, and one would even go on to author a play based around a series of four tarot card readings. That's super cool. So... Mm-hmm. How would a woman or any member of the group kind of rise up through the ranks? Yeah, great question. So basically, the Golden Dawn follows a model super similar to the Freemasons. There are titles, degrees, and initiations, and you rise through the ranks after completing certain tests of knowledge and demonstrations of skills. Oh my god. (laughs) I know. It sounds intense. It sounds like school all over again. (laughs) It truly does. So there are three different levels to the Golden Dawn. We call them orders. The first order, referred to as simply the Golden Dawn, focused on personal development through the study of the four elements, fire, water, air, and earth, as well as teaching the basics of astrology, tarot divination, and geomancy. I understood all of those words except for geomancy. (laughs) Do you care to enlighten me? (laughs) I will, I will. So geomancy is a divination method that is done by interpreting the markings or patterns formed after you toss like rocks or dirt into the air. Super cool. This goes into like, this gets into some of the mystical arts that I, when I look at them, I'm like, how did you get anything out of that? Or like, I've seen people read wax in water and I'm just like, I don't, it's beautiful. What, how do you know what it means? Oh yeah, totally. I'd love to learn that someday. Just, just teach me how you know. Yeah. Well, wait till you, wait till you hear what's next in this order. Hmm. So the second order or inner order called the order of red rose and cross of gold taught magic, including astral travel, alchemy, and scrying, which is what you're getting out with that wax there. It's basically the practice of looking into things and receiving guidance or prophecy or maybe just inspiration or whatever. Think like crystal balls and tea leaves for this one. 
Okay. So once you are in the second order of the group, you'll choose what you want your specialty to be in. And you have the pick of a few things like astrology, tarot, or like Enochian magic. I love this idea. Like the, that you have to pick a specialty and just have this like mental image of you either having to like pick your major in college or like when doctors have to pick like what field of medicine, like I want to be pediatrics or a surgeon. So I have to know, like, do, what would you pick, Ruth? Did did you like were you like, yeah, I would totally have studied Ooh. this if I'd been alive back in the day and, and in this order? Yeah, <laughs> I'd probably choose alchemy. I think that's the coolest of all of them. I want to turn lead into gold. I want to mix and match, you know, potions as I did as a young child in the backyard with soaps and chemicals that were probably very dangerous. Alchemy. Yeah, I did a lot of that, too. Now that you're saying that there are a lot of strange mixtures happening in my backyard. Ooh, that'd be fun. Alchemy. Maybe an astral projection in there. Toss that in for good measure. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. Save on plane tickets. (laughs) I wish that's how that worked. That would be amazing. So the third and last order was that of the secret chiefs. And this is where we have a little bit of contention as to what exactly a secret chief is. Secret chiefs were viewed as beings that could be contacted via the astral plane. But in the beginning, only the founders of the Golden Dawn had access to the secret chiefs. Mm. One founder of the order thought that they were living humans who had, like, evolved and now possessed the secrets of immortality and superhuman magical powers. But secret chiefs, whether real or spirits, provided spiritual guidance and authority for the group. It is a fact to all members of the group that to reach the third order, one must cross the abyss that separates regular life from union with the divine. But kind of here's where the contention lies. To some members, crossing the abyss means physical death. Oh no! (laughs) Yeah, and therefore no living person can claim to be a member of the third order. And to others, it's a spiritual epiphany that causes you to lose your ego forever and gain a true understanding of divine purpose. Ooh, you know, those are some really, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. Like, when you're trying to form a religion, like, having something so different and disparate from one another as a part of your core tenets, that's that's a recipe for, um disaster. (laughs) Absolutely. It absolutely is. That's wild. So to unpack that like a little more, when the Golden Dawn was founded, just the founders had access to the secret chiefs, right? Right. Mm. Okay. So the rest of the members depended on them to pass down any messages from the secret chiefs. Yep. This like immediately sends up my red flag alert. Um, Just from learning about religion's cults and myths. This is a tactic a lot of dangerous cults. I'm not saying that this order was dangerous, but a lot of dangerous cults used to manipulate their members. The whole like gatekeeping situation where they're like, only I know what this god or goddess wants of us. And you're like, that is a hardcore way to like manipulate and oppress people. Absolutely. Yeah. This is like, it's also giving me strong vibes of like the man behind the curtain, which is from the scene in Wizard of Oz where Dorothy like, she first gets to see the wizard. He sends her on all those quests to go get the broom and kill the witch and all that before he's willing to help her. So like he has her do a bunch of like free labor (laughs) to like send her home but then like when she goes through all of that and comes back they find out it's just some dude behind a curtain using smoke and mirrors to pretend to be much more powerful than he is um and yeah it's just it's like that it's a pretty consistent tactic used to keep large amounts of people 
oppressed through gatekeeping. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like in their history, this particular order did that the way we've seen in other like religious cults that have had some more um, dangerous outcomes like Jonestown and right. <laughs> Heaven's Gate, you know. So yeah, this just sends up a red flag. Um, just also knowledge, knowledge for anybody out there. You know, it preys on that combination of like fear of punishment and abandonment, the human need for community and like uh, being abandoned by your community if you don't follow these rules. And then like your general survival instinct to understand what keeps us safe from what keep what could harm us. You're playing on that instinct and humans to to survive. And it, I, I don't like it. It's dicey. I don't like it. It's just, uh, it is dicey. Speaking of cults, Anna. Oh, good. We won't get into it in this episode, but there <laughs> is a direct line from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn to Scientology. Oh, good. Great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> ouch. <laughs> I mean, this whole like contention just among who secret chiefs are and how to become one and how to enter into like the third order. Sounds like it could be a recipe for a little bit of a little bit of drama. Yeah, this caused a ton of drama and would bite the founders in the ass later on and eventually lead to the demise of the Golden Dawn. Oh no. It became one of the main points of contention because every member in the group was trained in channeling and astral projection. Oh no. So many members would start claiming to be in contact with a secret chief and issue orders. And if someone didn't like it, then they would claim to have received conflicting information from a different secret chief. And then on top of that, you have the members of the group that believe secret chiefs were physical beings and you couldn't channel them. So to them, both of these previous claims are bullshit either way. <laughs> I just, I've got that like circus tune, like, do, 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 like just playing in yep. my head. But it's like, no, what I said is right. No, what you, what, what I said is right. It, uh, hot mess, hot mess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It didn't really become a problem until like people started attaining like the second order and higher and higher levels to, to the faction. But there is actually one story about um, a section of the order that claimed to have channeled a chief who told them to move to New Zealand and to await the physical arrival of their chief. So the group did move to New Zealand, but that secret chief unfortunately just never showed up. And so just in general, each faction of the order refused to acknowledge the authority of another faction's contact with a secret chief. (laughs) Oh, oh no, this is... This feels like a really overly complicated way for people to avoid, like, communicating with each other clearly and finding compromise. (laughs) Right. It's like, well, if I've got, like, you know, God on my side, I don't have to talk about my emotions and find a compromise. I'll just go do that thing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it feels like uh, they could have benefited in addition to a lot of, like, the practices of astrology and you know, alchemy, they could have added in like conflict management as a speciality. (laughs) Somebody would have benefited from being that, you know, having that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We need some counselors. We actually need like specific counselors who are trained in, you know, talking about your emotions and why you disagree with one another in conflict resolution. (laughs) Exactly. So this is hilarious to me, but let's back up. So before all the shenanigans with the secret chiefs and the downfall of the Dawn, how did the Golden Dawn end up being formed? What started it all? Yeah, so the foundation of the Golden Dawn came from this set of manuscripts from 1809 called the Cipher Manuscripts. 
These manuscripts were authored by a Frenchman named Eliphas Levi. This collection consists of 60 papers all written in secret code. An Englishman named Kenneth Mackenzie visited Levi and received a copy of these writings, hoping to decipher the messages and write a proposal to create an occult lodge based on the rituals and teachings of Levi. Unfortunately, Mackenzie died before starting on the project, and the papers were passed to one of the founding members and our boy, William Wynne Westcott. Mm. And after decoding them, he realized that the papers outline a series of magical initiation rituals. Ah, my man Levi. I think we touched on him uh, earlier in the last episode. He's formerly a Catholic deacon. We did. He was actually born Alphonse Louis Constant. I think it's kind of funny to me. It's just a little amusing that, like, Mackenzie went to Levi to get these texts, and Levi could have told him how to decode these texts. It's not like Levi was dead yet. Like, the guy who originally wanted to decode these texts could have just talked with Levi. So I'm like, I, I would love to know what's going through Levi's head. Like, like oh, only, like, people who are worthy can decipher this or something like that. But, you know, I'm like, the, the guy's alive, and he genuinely wants to start, like, a whole temple based yeah, off of your teachings based off of your things i know i think that there's like we don't specifically know the reasoning why it could have been channeling like maybe he was channel like quote unquote channeling a deity that was telling him to write those things or uh you know he was just a little bit cuckoo yeah maybe yeah we will never know we don't have any uh writings about why the man who coded it didn't decode it for us right the world may never know the world may never know. All right. So Westcott ended up having to go through the whole decoding process. Is that right? So the text was coded by using what's called a substitution cryptogram. Basically, each letter was replaced by a Hebrew letter. So once Westcott figured out what was going on, he was easily able to decipher each 60 letters. But a lot of the interpretation relied heavily on Westcott's existing knowledge of occult practices from being a Freemason, because there were also a number of crude drawings of diagrams and magical implements and tarot cards interspersed throughout the text. So a lot of the interpretation did fall on his own judgment, and once he finished translating all the pages, he realized that the ciphers outlined basically a syllabus of rituals based on astrology, alchemy, geomancy, and occult tarot. The ciphers would become the lesson plan for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and you would be graded on these rituals before you could pass on to the next level of the order. More schooling that I don't really want to have to do. <laughs> I'm scarred from tests. Right. Too many tests. But that's super interesting. So he did he did decipher all of them. I kind of want to get my hands on, you know, an actual deciphered version of this just to see, like, what did the original writings look like before they were interpreted by Westcott. Yeah, I just have a lot of questions about what they were for. You can absolutely, you can Google it. It's all online now. Um, we have access to all these rituals now, and they are dense. I actually skimmed through the initiation ritual before we recorded. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. So they're super specific on what people of different ranks should wear and what should be said or sang or chanted and when, and also which direction you should be facing. Like it all takes place in kind of like a circular room with markings on the floor. So you, so you also, you, you definitely need a compass to complete these rituals. <laughs> yeah. You got to know your North and your South, East and West situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you thought that was crazy, buckle up because it's about to get wild. 
By the mid-1890s, the Golden Dawn was flourishing with over 100 members from nearly every Victorian class, and at least four thriving temples have been established at this time. That, you know, that is, that's really interesting to me that it, like, it had like four separate physical locations and it actually spanned the different social classes. But usually you can see it like something like this, it thrives in one particular class for whatever reason, but it's, hmm. It was mainly wealthier individuals that were involved in this, but there were definitely a number of middle and lower class people in this group. So, yeah, it is shocking just how inclusive, for all its faults, it was a fairly inclusive group. Yeah, that is really interesting. So in 1897, Westcott accidentally left a number of occult-related papers that had his address on them in a hansom cab, which is like a horse-drawn carriage, if you're not familiar. I was not. I was definitely not. All of you plebeians that have never <laughs> ridden in a horse-drawn carriage. I've never ridden in one. Oh my goodness. <laughs> when the papers were found, Westcott's connection to the order was discovered and revealed to his employer. He was told that he had to resign from the order or give up his occupation as a highly esteemed government-appointed coroner. <laughs> Rip. I think it's, a, I mean, it's not hilarious to have your job security threatened, but it is a little hilarious that his mm. employer would care that much that the coroner was a part of this group. Like, it's not like this guy was like a political figure going out making speeches or like, I'm in parliament or a duke or something like that. It's he wasn't like a public figure out there espousing these beliefs he's the he's the coroner he's just doing his job man (laughs) exactly and here's some juicy drama though Mm. in alistair crowley's biography he alleged that one of the other group's founders mathers planted the documents in the cab in an effort to consolidate his power over the order by forcing westcott to resign over the matter We don't technically have any way to prove this, but it does seem like Mathers and Westcott's friendship was over after this point. Ooh, ouch. Sometimes I have one of those like realization that it's like high school just like doesn't end. And it seems like that's the case in like any era. It's like, oh, we we haven't matured. It's so true. Beyond a certain point in our lives still, even back then in this mystical hermetic order, we haven't, um, you know, been spiritually enlightened enough to not play power games it's it just seems like the super antithesis of probably what they were initially aiming for when it comes to like spiritual development this whole like power struggle yeah even in your secret society you can't get away from the mean girls rude we don't like the mean girls so by 1900 the group was falling apart due to infighting and even a criminal trial hmm. One of the main contributors to the group's demise was the great beast himself, Alistair Crowley. Nobody in the group outside of the founders really liked Crowley. (laughs) Many in the group were uncomfortable with his interpretation of practices and rituals. The group eventually decided to kick Crowley out. And one of Crowley's main rivals was poet William Butler Yeats. (laughs) (laughs) This is wild. There is... I'm sorry, I've never heard of a poet who had a rival and then... (laughs) Oh, this is a Mean Girls. This is such a Mean Girls. How bad of a rival can it be? Is he just like writing slam poetry about you? Right? Like, when you say rivals, what is the rivalry about? Who's, like, what are you doing? Like, you're not, clearly not having fistfights in the hall at school. Like, what what does that look like between two adult men? (laughs) Oh, man. It looks better than you could even imagine. Let's get into it. (laughs) So both Crowley and Yates wholeheartedly believed that their magical practices could have real-world effect. And they were butting heads so often that Crowley consulted with one of the group's founders, Mathers, 
who advised Crowley on spells that could convert members of the Golden Dawn into siding with Crowley. Mathers also advised that Crowley dress in Celtic garb to help increase his power. Wow, that um, that is some shady shit, but I would love to know what happens um, after the fact. Did, did Crowley get people on his side? Did people kick Yates out? What happened? So here we are now at the infamous Battle of Blythe Road. Ooh. One day Crowley had decided he had had enough of Yates's bullshit and decided to challenge him to a magical duel. Yes. So he showed up to the Golden Dawn's London headquarters on Blythe Road. He attempted to climb a flight of stairs to find Yates and confront him, but Yates and other members of the group stopped him before he could reach the top. So they started hurling spells at each other, and despite claiming to be some of the most powerful magicians in the land, the battle ended when Yates resorted to simple assault and kicked Crowley down the stairs. <laughs> this is the best mental image in my mind. I'm, you know, guessing the spells weren't um, really doing much in the real world, and all the spectators probably got a little, a little bored. So now I just had this mental image of two grown-ass adults yelling like gibberish at each other in a stairwell, and it makes me wonder how they managed to, you know, pass their Golden Dawn tests in the first place, if this is what it devolved into <laughs> right right i know i need somebody to recreate this for me yeah like could you imagine if this is how like things were solved like let's pretend your manager and like the manager of another department like got in a fight and they just started in the middle of the lunchroom yelling gibberish at each other until one of them finally just kicked the other like it's just like the most uncool thing you hear the term oh magical gosh. duel but it was actually like lame the lame-ass magical duel. The lame-ass magical duel doesn't sound very magical at all. It's just two people that can't resolve their emotional issues with one another. <laughs> so after Yates resorted to simple assault and kicked Crowley down the stairs, Crowley was then escorted out of the building and a police report was filed so he would not be able to come back. I think we can all agree that the magical duel did not live up to its dramatic name. Sure didn't. Nope. Yates was a member of the Golden Dawn for 32 years, and Crowley went on to found a religion called Thelema that preached a hedonistic lifestyle and led newspapers to call him the wickedest man in the world. Despite both parties casting spells and hexes on each other, both men died of natural causes. <laughs> what a letdown. Wow. But also what a classic move on Crowley's part, it, you know? take this lesson away if your current cult doesn't believe in you just make a new one exactly that's basically the reason we have like a million different christian denominations um but yeah <laughs> just just start a new club just start a new club just start a new club that's it as we've said before many esoteric practices can find their roots in the golden dawn including talesmen astrology tarot and so many more while the Order definitely didn't invent any of these things, they did synthesize them into coherent bodies of work, and the impact of that work alone cannot be overstated. In fact, if the Order hadn't existed, we would definitely not have Anglo-American tarot as we know it today. We likely would have something more in line with early French occultist tarot decks, such as like the Livret d'Etoile <laughs> deck that we talked about last week that was created in 1789. And this podcast would be completely different, and we might be having to pronounce more French words than you would care to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, nobody would care to hear any more French words pronounced by me. <laughs> me neither. Did not take that. <laughs> right, right. One of the main reasons that the Order had such an impact on tarot history is because each member of the Order was required to make its own hand-drawn tarot deck according to the Order's guidelines. That sounds like a lot of intense work, and 
I really loved art in high school, but if you weren't good at illustrating, like that just sounds like a bad time. Um, you know, it's truly a way to make you hate drawing if you just already are bad at it, making truly. you draw like 78 cards <laughs> by hand. Yeah, so it wasn't an easy task, that's for sure. Based off of Levi's original teachings in the Cypher manuscripts, the Golden Dawn's complex tarot teachings included tables of correspondences, how and when to use tarot and magical practices, and super elaborate spreads intended to be used for divination purposes. The order's idea of the tarot card meanings and the card's orders and much of the symbolism is very different to what we generally use today. Of course, every tarot deck is hyper unique to the author's own interpretation of the tarot, but I'm just going to assume that most of our listeners are familiar with the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck system. So the group's changes started with assigning the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet to the fool instead of the magician, thereby shifting all the numbers to the rest of the cards, which caused some issues because numerology is closely tied to the tarot meanings. So then they switched strength and justice's places so that the numerological meanings would be more plausible. Their terror system also reordered the court card meanings and correspondences. It's super confusing. You should look it up. The ten numbers of the pip cards were associated with the Sephiroth on the Tree of Life and were also associated with the 36 deacons of the horoscope wheel and the 72 Kabbalistic angels. The major cards were assigned to the pathways on the, on the Tree of Life, and some were given unique designs and names. For example, the Devil card was named the Lord of the Gates of Matter. And that is a general overview of the Order's guidelines on tarot and what every member of the Golden Dawn had to base their own tarot decks off of. Ooh, that's, that's a lot. I, I really do need, like, a picture book for kids to show me, like, the differences between yeah. the, their decks and, like, what I'm used to using. Now, there were over 100 members of the Golden Dawn, and many of the tarot decks created during that time have been lost to history. But there have been several tarot decks birthed out of or based on the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn that did reach some level of popularity. So most of these decks have been lost to history if it wasn't for one sneaky fella named Israel Rigardi, a member of the group who in the 1930s published a book outlining all of the secret society's secrets, thus making it no longer a secret society and marking <laughs> the end of the OG Golden Dawn. Amazing. Say that five times fast. Secret Society Secrets. <laughs> I did yes. a quick read-up on Israel, so it's not like juicy drama. He published their secrets because he genuinely wanted to make sure the rituals would last and would be passed down. He was mm. very concerned with the idea that the rituals would be lost to history, and he wanted more people to have access to the Golden Dawn's teachings. So this was not out of spite or drama. Um, Israel was basically anti-gatekeeping. He was basically like, more people need to know about this if you want this knowledge to be passed down. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So with that, with all the secrets not secret, it seems like the decks don't need to be a secret. <laughs> exactly. There was no point in keeping the decks a secret. So with urging from Israel, members started to publish the decks well into the 1970s, one of the most famous being the Thoth deck. While not necessarily created during his time in the Golden Dawn, at least art-wise for sure, the Thoth deck does have the Golden Dawn's Hebrew letter and astrological correspondences on the cards, and the Golden Dawn's court cards. Crowley also renamed Justice, Strength, Temperance, and Judgment 
Judgment as Adjustment, Lust, Art, and Eon, respectively. And he switched Justice and Strength back to their original order. But a good quality deck was not published until the late 1960s. And by this time, the Rider-Waite-Smith deck had sealed its position as the dominant deck in England and America. So the filth deck remained in its own niche. Hmm... And I'm sure we all know the Rider-Waite-Smith deck was created by A.E. Waite in collaboration with Pamela Colon-Smith. Both were members of the Golden Dawn, and when the Golden Dawn splintered into factions, A.E. Waite created his own order, the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. Sounds so happy. It does. It just sounds like a cheery order to be in. <laughs> Although both Waite and Smith had been members of the Golden Dawn, they did not necessarily create a Golden Dawn deck. But many aspects of the Golden Dawn's tarot teachings did influence the deck. Waite based his major arcana imagery on Eliphas Levi's Egyptianized description of the Trumps, as well as Christian symbolism and Golden Dawn's astrological attributions. The card meanings were drawn partly from the Golden Dawn and partly from Atia. But the most important deviation from the Golden Dawn is that Waite does not associate the Hebrew alphabet with the cards, which is the essence of occult tarot. So the formation of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was absolutely a turning point in the history for tarot. Every era of tarot history builds on what came before and lays the foundation for future developments. The way they wove together different esoteric systems into tarot is unmatched in all of occult history. They basically forever linked astrology into tarot by associating the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet with the major arcana cards. Since each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a zodiac sign or a planet associated with it, these astrological correspondences were slapped into the corresponding cards. Oh man, I really do think tracing back the the Hebrew alphabet and how it came to be associated with astrology could be its own episode. Just know that as usual, it's very nuanced and has evolved over time. Um, and I think we even mentioned in one of our previous episodes, like the Hebrew alphabet is its own alphabet devoid of any associations with tarot. There's the people who believe in tarot and the occult who have associated the Hebrew alphabet with their practice. But the Hebrew alphabet stands alone. It's its own language. It has its own history and culture through the Hebrew people. So don't like assume that Judaism or your Jewish friends are astrologers simply because the tarot community and occult community has adopted the Hebrew alphabet. That would be a that would be a disaster. <laughs> That would be wild. Absolutely would be a disaster. Well, founded in 1888, the Golden Dawn lasted a mere 12 years before it was shattered by personal conflicts. Oh, it made it to sixth grade. <laughs> it did make it to sixth grade. It made it to sixth grade. <laughs> At its height, it probably had no more than 100 members. Yet its influence on magic and esoteric thought in the English-speaking world would be hard to overestimate. But the historical and cultural legacy of the Golden Dawn has been more influential on modern occultism than any other esoteric organization or body of knowledge. Almost every expression of Western occult spirituality and neo-paganism today owes a debt to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Phew! Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you're a fan of the podcast, we need you to do this so we can find new fans. Tell your friends and rate and leave a review. Follow us on all socials. Our handles are Sweet Death Inc. and Mystic Fool Tarot on all platforms. See you later. Mm -hmm.